This morning, as we continue our first service preaching series about the Gospel of Mark, I want to say a word about stories, and then I want to tell you a story. That may surprise some of you, that may irritate some of you, and it may comfort a great many. And with all those likely reactions in hand, I press ahead to say a word about stories and then tell you a story that Mark gives us in a minimum of words. More typically, we come to worship, as we like to say, to hear the Word of God, by which we usually mean a well-crafted set of ideas that have been extracted from the Bible, placed in a rationally ordered list, and delivered to us with warmth and wit and three illustrations. But story-loving friends, it is not for nothing that 40% of this word is story. That more than 25% of it is poetry, and that the largest percentage of what remains is prophetic narrative, which is a combination of both story and poem. And yet we typically think of the sermons built upon this word in the language of the book of Romans, where the great grand truths of Scripture are delivered to us in in propositional form. The story tells us that David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The proposition tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Both are true, sad, but true. And both are the living and active word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and marrow of soul and spirit, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. But still we think of this word primarily as a set of ideas, rather than the inspired collection of stories and poetry and prophecy and real people's lives that it was that it is, and that it will be. Preachers have largely convinced us that this word is all about ideas, when in reality it more typically walks the roads we walk in everyday life. It traces the stories we want to remember. It reminds us of those odd bits of once memorized poetry. It points us ahead to answer the questions we have about what lies down the road. However, if I continue any longer in this vein, I will be guilty of the very thing I have been telling you about, reducing the great grand story of the Bible to a set of ideas about the Bible. So here's the story. The man sitting behind the polished wooden table, eyed the fly buzzing around the office walls. Left, right, up, down, swooping back and forth, testing out every wall, 
flying with a deep droning whir across the room to land heavily on the other wall. That fly was the only sign of life on an otherwise lifeless afternoon. All the shop windows had been closed since noon. Children had been called in protesting from their games of roll the hoop and chase the dog on the beach. They were now nodding off in some hot dreamland as their parents heaved a sigh of relief for the quiet. The grinding of cartwheels in the street had stopped as travelers and business people sought some cool in the heat of the day. In the whole of Capernaum, it seemed that the only two creatures awake were a tax collector named Levi and a clumsy fly. Levi eyed the fly again. How much like him that fly seemed. Never able to stay in one spot very long. Always flitting about, always collecting what he could, threatened by every slight disturbance of sound or wind. And lonely too. Come to think of it, that fly was always in his office every afternoon at this time. Never excitedly buzzing around with a mate, never in some gossipy circle of fly friends, no, always by himself. Probably lonely, Levi thought. Even as Levi's thoughts wandered, the fly sailed off the further wall and finally with a couple of loops landed with a dull thud on the top of the coin pile that Levi had been counting. It began its sticky walk up the face of the currency, tracing the outline of the profile of Caesar Augustus. Well, said Levi to the fly, at least you've got good taste. Perhaps, Levi thought to himself, uh, the fly liked the smell of money, the, the mystery of all the hands that it had been through, the fishermen, the bakers, the housewives, the carpenters, each leaving a little bit of their scent on the coin. Levi knew for certain that he loved the smell of money, the deep, musky scent of well-handled coins. He loved that tangy edge of bitter metal that came to your nose when you inhaled deeply over it. Levi loved everything about money. The soft clink that the coins made when he piled them up on the table. The cool touch of precious metal in his fingers. The dull gleam of of burnished gold as it stood out in a pile of silver. Yes, money, money was a man's best friend. All the others could have their gossipy circles of friends and their collections of favorites. All he needed was the good, solid, substantial coin of the realm. Money and more money stacking up in the strong box of the tax collector's office in Capernaum. He hated this time of day, Levi thought. 
He hated it because there was no money to be made. All the tradesmen came in the morning for the permits to travel, the, the authorization for tools, the export and import licenses that allowed them to go about the business of the day. And between noon and mid-afternoon, housewives and widows were highly offended if you interrupted their nap to demand their monthly assessment. Even the caravans that stopped on the outskirts of the town sought shade somewhere beside the lake. There was nothing to do except wait and think and watch the fly tickling the nose of Caesar. Tickling the nose of Caesar. Not a bad description for what he did either, Levi decided. Let those Jewish patriots have their fling with hot talk and shaking fists. He, he knew where his bread was buttered. The world was a Roman world. And anyone who wanted to make money in it had to make money the Roman way. And the Roman way was the way of the bribe. The little gratuities slipped into the pocket of the captain of the garrison. The privileges that a grateful king would give to a tax collector who could extract his money without inciting the population to rebellion. It took real skill to walk between the Jewish world and the Roman world, Levi knew. One step too close to his own people, and he would lose his job and all the money gathering that came with it. One step too close to the Romans, and he would likely end up in a back alley with a knife in his back. Cleverness was carefulness. That was his motto. Cleverness was carefulness. He had another motto, too, one that he took pains to remind the Pharisees and scribes of when they dragged themselves each year into his office to pay their annual poll tax. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, he would recite to them, just to see the anger burn in their dark eyes as he blasphemed their faith. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. And if he was feeling particularly spiteful that day, he would even remind them of what the book of Numbers said. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they serve. And his name was Levi, wasn't it? He loved to see them smolder on that one. They couldn't doubt that he really was a member of the priestly tribe, not with a name like Levi. And as they handed over their annual taxes, he would smile beneficently and say, Bless you, my son. Bless you, my son. Oh, they had gotten even all right. How many years had it been now since he was banished from the synagogue? Seven, maybe eight. They had even preached long sermons about him by name on Sabbaths, he had been told. He was despicable, an agent of Satan, an enemy to his people, an enemy to the God of Israel, a man in league with the devil, a thief, a lowlife, a man that no self-respecting Jew would have anything to do with. But those were only words, Levi decided. Words might be weighty. Words might be important. But at the end of the day, he was just as glad to have the cash. 
Let the religious types gather their skirts around them in self-righteousness. Let them sneer their little sneers and throw their catcalls. He didn't need many friends so long as he had money. And truth was, Levi thought, they really knew that he was right. He saw the envy in their eyes when they came into his office and saw the beautiful oriental silks and the Persian leathers and the precious stones from Arabia. They loved money, too. All except one of them. He he was relatively new to the area. From, From further up north, somewhere near Nazareth, they said, he had showed up in the tax office last spring to to pay his mother's annual poll tax, an average man with a friendly smile and an easy air around him. He had even handed over his denarius without the usual grumbling. And Levi remembered that he had taken special care to make sure that his hand touched Levi's hand as the coin passed between them. That had bothered him, Levi remembered. He didn't like being touched, especially by strangers. He didn't like the confusing feelings, the the unexpected emotions that personal warmth and, and closeness caused. And yet the young rabbi from the north had been in no hurry to go. He had actually lingered in the tax office and asked how business was. How was business in the tax office? How was it going? Splendidly, just splendidly, as long as sheep like you come in faithfully to pay your taxes. Levi wrinkled his forehead as he thought more about the young rabbi. It was clear enough that he didn't love money from the look of him. Just a simple robe of dusty white homespun with a sash of wool. Clearly from the peasant class. And those sandals on his feet marked him for a peasant. People said he had been a carpenter and a good one at that. People said his shop had done the best finish work in the whole North Country before he sold the business a year ago and went on the road preaching. Strange, Levi thought, strange. How a man might give up the solid security of a steady income to go out on the highways and byways without a roof over his head or or the promise of a regular meal. He would never do that. But there wasn't any sense of want or sadness about this young rabbi. He seemed as calm and caring a person as Levi had ever met. Levi had watched him through the window many times down on the lakeshore, rolling the hoops with the children and and talking with the fishermen. He, He moved easily among people, a smile always creasing his face, an arm ready to go around someone's shoulder. There was something different about this young rabbi, to be sure. And he preached differently, too. While the Pharisees and the synagogue officials always gave these incredibly long lectures about the law of Moses and the proper way to keep the Sabbath and the festivals, the the young rabbi talked about everyday things, about farmers, crops, plants, and 
birds and lost sheep and real people. Something in Levi's hard heart had softened just a bit when he heard the snatches of the sermons that wafted up from the lakeshore on the breeze. Oftentimes, he had actually stopped counting and gone down to stand by the window where the sound was better. What was that story he liked? Something about a man who found a treasure in a field and and went out and sold everything he had and took the money and bought the field? That was a good one, Levi decided. Seems like that young rabbi had his head on straight. He knew that you had to have your life fixed on one goal, one thing, if you were ever going to succeed in life. And Levi's goal, everyone knew, was money, while the young rabbi's goal was something he called the kingdom of God. Well, Levi thought even if he didn't buy everything this Jesus said, he certainly did make religion seem a bit more like real life. A shadow swept across the window in the street, and instinctively Levi straightened up. He had been daydreaming far too long. It was time to get back to business, time to get back to the business of making money. He felt uncomfortable with these softer thoughts that had been flooding in a lot of late. He had to get control of himself. Soft-headed people did not make good businessmen. There wasn't time for the things of the heart when there was money to be made. He waited for the shadow to pass the other window on the street, but it didn't. Whoever it was seemed in no hurry to pass his office as everyone else was wont to do. He heard the shuffling of feet in the doorway. He heard the sound of hands patting the dust off of robes so as not to track it into his office. Whoever this was was respectful, to be sure. He knew people who would go out of their way to walk in the mud just so they could track it in his office. Whoever this was, was taking care not to offend. The shadow filled the doorway and silhouetted against the brilliant sunshine reflected on the lake. The visitor was unrecognizable, probably just another tradesman looking for his license, maybe just a caravan leader eager to be on his way on the road to Damascus who needed the usual stamp on his papers. Levi carefully looked away from the visitor. It was important, he said, to to give the appearance at all times of being busy so that the rabble wouldn't think he had gone soft. Yes, he said sharply. What do you want? There was no answer from the visitor in the room. Just quiet breathing. Levi could feel eyes on him that seemed to burn into his heart. He lowered his head over his lists again and demanded, What did you come for? This time the answer came back quickly, soft with a hint of a laugh in it. I've come for you, Levi. I've come for you. Come follow me, Levi. Come be my disciple. Levi felt the blood drain out of his face, and his knees jumped under the polished tabletop. It was him. 
it was him. It was the young rabbi here in his office. And what was he saying? Come follow me. Come be my disciple. This was impossible. How had this Jesus taken such leave of his senses? But when he looked into the, that smiling face and those intense dark eyes, it clearly wasn't the face of a madman. Every line in the face said, I mean it. Every feature in the face said, there's nothing wrong here. Impossible. Impossible. Jesus wouldn't want him, not him, not a low-down, dirty, scum-of-the-earth, despicable tax collector. What Jesus really wanted was those respectable types with the polished theology and the impeccable manners. He didn't want thieves and criminals and lowlifes around him. I mean, people would talk. People would gossip. People might even shy away from him because he associated with, with men like Levi. But something in Levi's cold, money-hungry heart had begun to melt. And all the protests died silently on his lips. All his rational objections for why it couldn't be true, for why it could never work, they died away into nothingness. Jesus wanted Impossible. Jesus wanted him. Couldn't be true. Jesus wanted him. How could it happen? Jesus wanted him. What did it mean? Jesus wanted him. Where would they go? Jesus wanted him. When could they leave? He was still standing there in front of the desk, the young rabbi, waiting for his answer. Levi somehow knew that he read all of the strange, confusing thoughts that were playing in his mind. Levi saw the smile on the edges of the rabbi's mouth that seemed to say, I know, I know. I know it all, and I still want you. Come follow me. Come be my disciple. Come, Jesus said. And he reached out his hand the way a child reaches out for the hand of a playmate. Slowly, Levi's arm raised to meet it, brushing coins off on the floor, but, but that didn't matter. That wouldn't matter. If this, if this Jesus was fool enough to ask him, he would be fool enough to go. Hands locked. Eyes locked. Lives locked. That afternoon in the tax collector's office. Tears came to Levi's eyes, hot, hurting tears. Thirty years of, of rejection and abandonment and misery and loneliness, all weeping themselves out on that dusty, white, 
peasant robe with the ugly wool sash. As a carpenter's strong arms wrapped around him and held him close. It seemed as, as though a dam had broken in the life of a young man who wept out his need for God, for a friend, for a Lord to follow, for a master to serve. And all the while, the smiling young rabbi in the wet robe wouldn't let him go, but kept murmuring, I know, I know, I know it all, and I still want you. Come follow me. Come follow me. My friends, I have a simple message for you today. I have a simple gospel to share with you. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever you've done, whatever you've left undone, Jesus still loves you. Your children are right when they sing it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He's standing there in the doorway of your tax-collecting life, reaching for your hand and say, come, follow me. He can see all the sins you've counted up in your life. He can see all the stuff you've stacked upon the table. He can see the lies. He can see the lust. He can see the anger. He can see the pride, the foolish, hurting things you did. He knows what's in all of the drawers and in the bedrooms and in the back rooms of your life. And he isn't running away. He isn't gathering up his robe in holy horror at the thought of you. No, he isn't looking for someone else. He's looking for you. He can see the anger that has smoldered inside of you because you were made the victim of someone else's sin. He can see the ways you carried on the pain by cutting other people's hearts and hurting their lives. He's heard the times when in your heart you've been so angry at God that you cursed him and you said you wanted nothing to do with him. He's read the times when you told yourself or others that you didn't have any need for Jesus in your life while all the time your heart was crying out for someone to love you, some God to hold you. He has felt the loneliness you felt when your sins overwhelmed you. And it seemed like God was a million, billion miles away. And still, my friends, still he stands there in the doorway of your tax-collecting life with his arms open wide saying, yeah, I love you. Now come, follow me, follow me. 
Jesus isn't looking for the holy types. Jesus isn't looking for the perfect ones. Jesus isn't looking for the ones who look like they've got their religious act together or who have published their spiritual autobiographies at a vanity press. What is it he said when his enemies accused him of associating with tax collectors and prostitutes and the low-life types of Galilee? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You believe it today? Do you believe that Jesus has really come into our fellowship, into our congregation this morning to call hurting, sinful, broken men and women like you and me to follow him? Or are you still sitting there in the office of your life trying to tell him that he must mean someone else, that you're too sinful or too guilty or too miserable to ever be his special friend? Jesus stands in front of you, in front of me, as he once stood in front of Levi Matthew. And he looks at you, he looks at me, with that same smiling face and those same laughing eyes, and he says, I know. I know. I know it all. And I still want you. Now come follow me. Behold, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, if any woman, if any boy, if any girl, if any grandparent, if any young parent will open the door and invite me in, I will eat a meal of celebration with them. To the one who is victorious, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. My answer this morning is yes. My answer is breathed with all the holiness and all the reverence and all the gratitude that can come from a broken life. My answer is yes. So what about you? What about you?